0: All right, if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke 6,
1: verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand, And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Thank you, Michael. All right. Well, we're going to
2: jump right into the text, but I want to invite you to grab a physical Bible. I know you have access to one because you're home, so please grab one. This is going to be extremely important because we're going to go to a number of texts and we're going to look closely at this base text. And I think it's especially important with this challenge of digital distance. And instead of just kind of being a, sorry to use this bad word, but a consumer and just sitting and passively hearing me talk at you, let's open God's word together and see what he has to say to us. Because this is the source. This is the, this is the main attraction. And ultimately, this is just pointing Jesus, right? Like, I'm not the main attraction. Like, I, don't, I, I only have limited wisdom. I only know, like, less than one. I have less than 1% understanding of the entire universe and everything there is to me to know, right? But this, this is what we want. So please grab a Bible. I'll still be here when you come back, all right? So to, let's jump right in. So for most of my life, if you know me, people have called me driven. And there's a few people here in the, this empty room, and they snicker because that's kind of a word that people would describe me if they've known me over the years. The thing about the word driven, it's a positive term often, but it's also kind of a tricky word. When you think about it, if you're driven, then that means something or someone is driving you. You're in the passive. Something is moving you. And for many years, I was kind of in like a cruise mode, being driven by selfish ambition, driven by a desire for acceptance, affirmation. I wanted to prove myself. I had a chip on my shoulder. And after I became a Christian, that same kind of mindset needed to be rooted out by God. And somewhere around about 10 years ago, I started to have a, um, a fresh encounter with the gospel. And understanding that I don't need to prove anything anymore. I don't need to be good enough because Jesus was good enough for me. And so for the last 10 years, God has been steadily deconstructing this kind of mindset I had. I was told early on that there were good Christians. Oh, he's a good Christian. What, who, who, that's a weird thing to say. And I made sure to know that I want to be, um, I, I committed myself to be one of those good Christians. And, and so God has been teaching me on how to let Jesus be good enough for me. And maybe you're like me. You struggle feeling like you're not enough. I remember even talking to a guy in, Bi- in Bible college. We were talking about like com- com- confronting sin or rebuking, and he said, Sam, the reason why I can't hear anybody t- telling me about any of my sin is because I already feel terrible. I already feel like I'm never good enough. I already feel like God's already displeased with me, so I can't hear one more thing. I'm already failing enough. And Maybe you feel like that guy. Uh, you're sick and tired of not being good enough, constantly under a burden and feeling um, like one hymn. Famously said, under God's righteous frown, frown. You feel his frown over you. You don't pray enough. You don't read enough. You don't do good enough. You don't evangelize enough. So if that's you, and I I would suspect a lot of you feel this way, because I felt this way, that I have great news for you. The text that we have today has good news for you today. Now, it is a challenging text. This week, I, I was talking to Pastor Ross, and he said that it was the hardest. He thinks it's the hardest passage we have tackled thus far in Luke. So I felt really good about that because I feel great about this text, but it's been very it's been hard as I labored over what God is trying to, the harpy behind this text and what he has for our specific community. So again, grab a Bible and look on with me. We're in Luke chapter 6, verse 1 through 11, but first we always got to go to the context. Go to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is a passage we've been going over again and, and again, and it's kind of like a theme passage. Jesus is making this huge spiritual and political statement and he's fulfilling everything he announces here he's a guy who follows up with what he says he will do let's just look at one part it says the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news or gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives okay we're going to focus on this term liberty to the captives there's lots of other things here if you want to quickly look at your bible and jesus fulfills all of them He not only says it, but he says, hey, let me show you that I can do what I say I will do, unlike many of our politicians of this day, as I've said many times before. He has set people free physically. He has set people free where they can now see. He has set people free spiritually, socially. And now he's going to liberate people who are under the oppression of the law. But not just God's law, but how man has twisted God's law and corrupted it. God's law isn't the problem, but it's man's twisted heart that does something terrible to God's law. And so Jesus is waging war and setting captives free from legalism. And the specific battle today is going to be over the Sabbath. But the greater war is going against legalism. So Luke chapter 6, verse 1. My son is running around and distracting me. I love you, son. Please stop running. All right. Luke chapter six, if you're there, and this is coming right off the heels again from Pastor uh, um, Daniel's sermon two weeks ago, that there's this new paradigm, this new covenant that's going to be different from the old wineskin and old garment. Now look at Luke six, one on a Sabbath. Okay, stop there. I know that's annoying. We're going to stop right here on a Sabbath. The word Sabbath just basically means rest. And for those who grew up in the church, even for you, it may be unfamiliar. And if you did not grow up in the church, if you're a skeptic and you grew outside without the stuff, it's extremely strange. What is the Sabbath? So here's our Bible study starts. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you are new to the Bible, Deuteronomy is in the beginning. You want to go to it. Chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 12 through 15. Now, we're not going to go super deep, but we're going to try to get a good idea of what the Sabbath is, because the Bible can tell us what God's original design behind it is. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Okay, so this is what it is. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath or a rest to the Lord your God or Yahweh to your God. And then he continues and he says, not just for you, but for your servants, for the men, for the females, for uh, the children, even the animals. Now, calling an entire nation to take a whole day off was absolutely insanity. It was absolutely unheard of for that time and even for our time, except for those who know this. Is unbelievable in that God would so say that, you know what, even animals, even slaves, everybody should take a day off, should rest unto the Lord. They, God values them. This is, he is way beyond, the Bible is way beyond every progressive movement out there that values people. They're just basically stealing the heart out of the Bible and then removing all the foundations. Anyway, that's another whole thing. So this was a radical new thing, and it was supposed to be a blessing for the community, not a burden. This was supposed to be the highlight of the week. Now let's look at the next part of the the verse, verse 15. Deuteronomy 5, 15. You're gonna see a little bit more about what's going on on the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Let's just stop there. So not only are they to rest, They're supposed to remember, remember what God had done. It's a day to remember it was a liberation day to reflect on what God has done for them. So very simply, Sabbath was a weekly day for Jews as that was a life-giving blessing for them to simply stop working, rest, and remember who they are and who God is and what he's done for them. It was supposed to be a blessing. Now, over the years, Sabbath became something it was never intended to be. Now, you don't have to flip there, but if you want to, you can go to Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. And Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12 through 13 actually showed that one of the primary reasons why Yahweh exiled his people into foreign lands and punished them is because they did not keep the Sabbath. They actually profaned the Sabbath and they twisted it in a very unhealthy way. Now, the Sabbath was extremely important for the people. It was a covenant sign, and it was one of the litmus tests that if they were keeping the Sabbath faithfully, they were taking care of so many other things. It was a domino habit. What a domino habit is something that when you do it well, it actually dominoes into all these other blessings and areas of your life. You miss that piece, and then all of a sudden, all these other areas start to fall apart. And so imagine, every week, one day a week, you're stopping from working You're remembering who you are. You're remembering what God has done for you. Can you imagine how good that would be for a whole community to do that week after week, stopping and thinking about how good God is? And so you can imagine if they miss out on the Sabbath, they miss out on so much. And that's what actually Israel did. So good hearted Jews. Once they returned back from exile, realizing, hey, we don't want that to ever happen again. That was terrible. Let's not go to exile again. Let's make sure we never break the Sabbath. We'll never break that again. We're going to make sure we're going to keep it perfectly. But instead of focusing on the heart, what they did is they missed the whole picture. Let me explain the Pharisees were uh, one of the most influential teacher teachers and groups in Israel, in Jesus' time. And they had this mindset that if they were pure enough, holy enough, and led Israel to be that way, that they could usher in the Messiah and the new kingdom. And so they had it very much in their mindset, they need to keep the Sabbath perfectly. And so in their attempt to perfectly keep the Sabbath, they started to create the laws around the Sabbath to make sure they never even come close to breaking. If the the Bible says simply that you got to stop and rest and remember, let's just make sure we we add a couple extra hedges to make sure we don't even come close to that. So some people call this hedging. Let me give you an example. Let's say you struggle um, with looking at porn, which is a terrible thing to do for a million reasons, right? And it's directly breaking Uh, a command to not lust upon another person. Now, let's say you say, okay, I want to make sure I never look at porn again. I am going to create a rule for myself that I will never, ever use another electronic device ever again in my life. Now, if you did that, you could almost guarantee you would never look at porn again. Probably. However, what would be very dangerous is then you would then go on this Crusade to make sure that no one else could ever look at a, another device again. Because if they do, then they can fall into pornography also. And so hedging in itself has some wisdom in certain applications. However, what becomes very dangerous is in when you take your hedge and then make other people embrace your hedge as if it's the very law. They took the principle in the heart, and instead of focusing on the principle in the heart. They focused on the laws around to make sure you don't even have to deal with your heart. And that's what happened with the Sabbath. And so by the time Jesus came onto the scene, the Sabbath became almost unrecognizable. Here are some hedges, some man-made traditions that became laws to them that they created. Okay, fires could not be lit. Fires could not be put out. You could only walk a certain distance from your house. You couldn't take a bath because if you took a bath and water splashed off of you onto the ground, then you would be accused of cleaning the ground. Women, women couldn't look into their crude mirrors uh, or, and put on any jewelry. If you were to find a white hair on your head, you would have to wait until the Sabbath is over if you wanted to pluck it out. They had about 39 prohibitions of what was forbidden, what kind of work would be forbidden on the Sabbath. Sounds like a fun day, huh? Sounds like a restful day, huh? It was supposed to be the highlight of the week, but it became something that most Jews dreaded every week because there was just so many prohibitions beyond it. They could never keep it so they're always failing, and they always felt like they could never truly rest and remember God. And so eventually these traditions became like law, became as important as the original commandment. And based on how well you performed and fulfilled this, you could often get a sense of social acceptance. And maybe subtly you start believing that you're more approved, more accepted, and more loved by God because you kept these man-made traditions better than others. They focus on the outward appearance and not on the heart. Now, so let's go back to our passage. That was a long foray into the Sabbath, but hopefully that was helpful because you got to understand what Jesus is walking into when we look at Luke 6. Okay, so Luke 6, 1 to 2. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, something to be really clear is if you want to flip quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, or you can make that note if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 23, 25. It was a provision that Yahweh graciously gave for, their, for strangers to come through and grab um, to edges of fields so that they can nourish themselves when they're hungry. However, the stalker Pharisees, I guess that's the only way they know this is going on. They're, they're stalking them in the fields, have a problem with this because they're doing this on the Sabbath. If they did it any other day, it'd be fine, but not today on the Sabbath. Now, I want to trace a sub throughout this whole sermon of the different characteristics of a Pharisee. I think it's important for us to all take note, because easily when we talk about Pharisees, we're like, oh, those Pharisees are so terrible. And in fact, if you look at the passage of, on Pharisees very carefully, you know who they remind me of? They remind me of me, and they remind me of you, those who I know well enough. And so take careful note of how we can see some of the heart of the Pharisees still at alive, alive inside of us. So here's the first you might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee when you are stalking people just to cast them to do something wrong. The Pharisees already are looking suspiciously at Jesus because, you remember, just even the previous chapter, he's accepting Levi, one of the most hated people, the traitor of Israel, into his company of followers. And so they're already thinking, well, if Jesus is about purity, he's huh, like he totally misses it. He can't be the Messiah if he's going to accept someone like Levi, Levi and, and, and have this scandalous banquet with all these people. And so they're already looking at him. And now everything that Jesus does is done through the lens of he's not the Messiah and he's an imposter. And they're looking for what's wrong in his life rather rather than having charity. Now,
0: notice what the Pharisees accused them of doing. What does it
2: say in the passage? What is unlawful? What is unlawful? They do not say, hey, did you know that some rabbis say it's not good to do that? Or there's some traditions about that. They say, that's the law. They've now taken a tradition, a hedge, and made it law. They can't do that. Don't you know that? See, Leon Morris, he's a helpful uh, biblical scholar. And he kind of explained that they understood that um, anytime they picked it, they were reaping. When they rubbed it in their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff, they considered that threshing and winnowing. And any time they ate it, it was, they were guilty of preparing food. So for every mouthful, the disciples were violating at least the law four different ways. <laughs> Insanity, isn't it? So the, the Pharisees are, are absolutely wrong about this. The disciples are not breaking the law at all, but merely the Pharisees' traditions. And so here's the other, you might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee when you elevate man made traditions to the same level as the commands of God. You might be a Pharisee when you elevate man made traditions to the same level as God's commands, or maybe even higher. Let's see how Jesus responds to the Pharisees and their bogus accusation. Look at chapter, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. And Jesus answered them Have you not read? great that's a good burn because jesus knows they've read okay so this is a jesus saying hey you totally missed it because the pharisees certainly have read the old testament have you not read jesus answered them what david did when he was hungry he and those who were with him how he entered the house of god and took and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who are with him okay let's stop here so, Jesus is bringing their attention to a, a story that is found in 1 Samuel 21, 1-6. Now, you don't have to turn there, but it is a tricky story. Now, let me give you a, a quick paraphrase of what's going on. Jesus is a uh, not Jesus, David is a faithful servant of King Saul. And King Saul was full of jealousy of David. And so, he tries to murder him, okay? He betrays David. So, David flees. And he gets to this town, Nab, and he is starving, him and his company of soldiers, okay? Now, they're here, and there's no food. They talked to the priest, and he said, there's no food except the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence was um, two rows of six loaves of bread that represent each of the 12 tribes of of Israel. And they would put them in the presence of God and represent that God um, took care of them, had provided for them. And every week on the Sabbath, they would throw out the old ones, and then put in a fresh uh, batch, and the old ones could only be eaten by the priest. Now, this priest realizes that David is going to die if he doesn't get some food, and that this is emergency. And he violates the ceremonial law and allows him to eat this bread that's only reserved for priests. And it's most likely that it's the Sabbath because there's one where they're switching out the breads. it seems. So, why is this okay? Why is it okay that David eats this bread? Well, David, and I believe the priest, understood an inherent principle in the law that you can see, and later on, Hosea writes about this in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I'm going to have you turn to there, Hosea 6, 6, because it's one of the most foundational passages in the Old Testament, and helps you understand the heart of God. It pushes against this mindset that God creates laws um, just because he feels like it, because he's a killjoy. But but it shows you that God's heart is deeper. Hosea chapter 6. Again, if you're, it's in the Old Testament if you're not familiar with the Bible. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so God is saying very clearly that his heart behind everything is love. His heart is love. And so, he, Jesus, by bringing up the story, is putting the, the Pharisees in a big dilemma. Because David was the hero king. He was the model king. They loved David. They would never dare accuse David of this kind of sin. And yet, Jesus is highlighting, he literally says, it was not lawful for what they did. What are you going to do about it? you Are going to accuse him? See, David's, David, uh, Jesus is... Exposing their hypocrisy and their inconsistency. The logic of Jesus' point is this. Okay, listen carefully. If David could be allowed by a priest to violate a God-given law on the Sabbath, then certainly the disciples could be able to, by the Son of Man, Jesus, to violate a man-made law on the Sabbath. The, 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 the Pharisees are losing their minds because they're breaking a man-made law, and Jesus is highlighting that even David, their hero king, broke a God-given law. What are you going to do about that? See, you might be a Pharisee when you're more concerned with following traditions than the good of people. See, that was the heart behind the Sabbath and behind all these laws is the good of people, the heart of love. And so Jesus is using the Old Testament to expose their legalism. Because what happened here is that the ceremonial law bowed to the law of love. The ceremonial law of only priests could eat bowed to the, to the fact that these people would starve without it. Jesus understands that here. So did
0: David. So did the priests. But the Pharisees don't get that.
2: And so look at Jesus' final statement in this setting, in this first scene, verse 5. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now he's been using the Old Testament law to expose the Pharisees.
0: And now he's pointing to himself as the ultimate authority
2: in explaining what he's saying about the Sabbath. He's not merely saying, Hey, you know, there's one rabbi who said this, and, and, and you know, that one passage said that he said, Listen, I'm the Lord of the stinking Sabbath. I can do whatever I want, and I totally understand the heart of it, and you totally miss the heart of it. I don't even think you've read it before, you're missing it so bad. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 24, just look over to the left. 5, verse 24, he says this, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This, this term, Son of Man, is first appears in 5, verse 24, and he's showing more, over and over again right now that the Son of Man has authority Authority over the Sabbath, which means he's the creator. And he also has authority over forgiveness of sins. Who alone has authority over the Sabbath and authority over forgiveness of sins? God alone. And he's kind of blinking headlights right here for them. Hey, hey, I'm the Messiah you've been searching for. I'm the one you've been longing and looking for. Pastor Ross talked about Daniel 7 and how that's a significant passage, and we're not going to go there for the sake of time. But the Son of Man, that's the most important passage to understand the Son of Man. And one of the biggest things you see is that he has authority. He's divine. He's going to reign forever. His kingdom will have no end, and all peoples will worship him. Jesus is not just saying, hey, you know, I'm a smart guy. I'm a clever guy. No, he's saying, I am God. I'm the creator. I can tell you what the Sabbath is all about. Let me help you understand the heart of it. And for those who have ears to hear, they would see that. And if you could even have even better ears to hear, you would understand he's also saying, I'm the one who you're looking for for rest. I'm the one your heart's searching for for rest. Now, I want to do a quick little thing with you. If you actually look at this passage in 1 Samuel 21 that Jesus is referring to, there's so many connections to who Jesus is. It's dripping with connections that Jesus is the son of David that they've been longing for. Think about this. Let me just rapid fire. It's just really out there if you think about it. Jesus is from the line of David. David goes into the house of God. Jesus later is identified that he is the ultimate house of God. Jesus is the high priest. He doesn't need a priest to give him bread because he is the great high priest. Uh, they eat the bread of the presence. Jesus will be later identified in John that he is the bread of life. And he's born from Bethlehem, house of bread. And uh, also bread of presence. Think about the word presence. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God's presence with us. David takes the bread and passes it with those with him. Who else does that? At the Passover feast, the last supper, Jesus has this bread, and he passes those with him. David is betrayed by his father-in-law, Saul. Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends. Isn't that cool? This This is dripping. It's just so many connections. The Bible is not just random. God has a divine story he is writing, and there's connections that goes everywhere.
0: You might be a Pharisee when you love the rules
2: more than the ruler. And Jesus is giving them a flashing light that he is the one they've been searching for, and yet they want their rules more than ruler. Now, Jesus is going to further reverse the Sabbath back to blessing from burden, and we're going to go look at verse 6. We're going to pick up the pace. Luke 6. So this is another Sabbath. Jesus is going to further deconstruct their mindset and show them that it's a blessing, not a burden. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, this is a small town, most likely. And even if it was a little larger town, this is the one that was a close-knit community. They knew who this guy was. They knew how this guy suffered. And it being his right dominant hand, most likely, meant that this significantly hindered this guy's ability to live well, have a, a decent quality of life. Now, here's the thing. The traditions for the Jews at this time, not a command, but a tradition, was that you could heal someone on the Sabbath only if it was saving their physical life. You could help deliver a child. They eventually made that concession, like, oh, we're a little too, we're going too far. Let's at least make that, right? And so they gave that concession. And so the Pharisees know this. Jesus knows this. And they know Jesus well enough. They're starting to learn that, listen, this guy has power. You can't understand it. And this guy cares about people, especially the people that nobody cares about. And so they're looking to see if they can catch him breaking this commandment. You might be a Pharisee if you only care if someone is helped the way you want them to be helped, under your conditions. Now. Jesus has a big issue with their whole paradigm that they're walking of this old wine skin, this legalistic mindset, this this burden, this yoke of teaching. And instead of tiptoeing around it and saying, you know what, let me just heal him tomorrow because that's going to cause no fuss. He goes directly at their throats. He calls the man to stand in front of everyone. He looks them down and calls them out with this question. See, he cares deeply about going at, at the neck, the throat of legalism, because he knows how damning legalism is. It's more dangerous than licentiousness, which is basically this idea of having free license to do whatever you want. Because licentiousness, everyone can tell it has destructive effect, effects. It's Very obvious, pretty quickly. But legalism is sneaky. Let me show you the heart of legalism. Let me take you to another passage real quick in Luke, Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. Jesus is talking about a uh, a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. He loves pitting Pharisees and tax collectors against each other, and they are going up to the temple. and Let me just read one verse, and then we'll go back to Luke six. He also told this parable to some. Listen, this is the heart of legalism, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there's a self trust. Believing you're self-righteous, and then simultaneously looking down on others who don't measure up like you. Jesus knew how wicked this was, and how much this was destroying his people. And so he is going straight at them. So look at what he does in verse eight. We're back in Luke chapter six, verse eight. But he knew their thoughts. Isn't that awesome? This has happened before. Jesus can read their minds it seems He knew their thoughts, or he knows them so well he knows what they're into And he said to to the man with the withered hand, come stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, he just asked them the most obvious question, the most easy to answer question, and stumps them. I ask you, is it lawful, there's that word lawful, lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? He's basically asking them a question that they cannot answer. They know the answer. Of course, everyone in the synagogue is like, of course it's to do good, not to do harm. But they can't answer that because if they do, then they're going to contradict themselves with their very attitudes that they have. So Jesus sets them up and exposes them. He shows them the heart of the law. The Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing, not a burden. It's not as much of what you can't do, but what you can do And it's supposed to be the good for the people. And so what he he does is he says, hey, stretch out your
0: hand. And the man is healed instantly. Let's just
2: marvel at that. He commands. What kind of authority is this that he just says, do something that you cannot do? The man had a withered hand. He could not stretch out his hand. Jesus tells him to do the very thing he cannot do, the very thing he wants to do. And he heals him on the spot. And he shows them the Sabbath is for the good of man, not for the oppression of man. This is the misconception I highlighted early in our culture that that the law is, is a killjoy. No, everything, everything that God commands has good design and reason behind it, even the ones that we can't. And part of the problem is that we naturally incline to love the things that harm us, and ultimately destroy us and so it's very hard for us to believe him but god's law his ways are good for us and jesus's healing is just another divine confirmation that his understanding of the sabbath and his understanding in his new kingdom new way is the right way now let's look at the pharisee's response what, what do you think the Pharisees would respond like? What do you think you would respond if you were there? Jesus just heals this guy that you know. Hey, Phil's, Phil's healed. He can use his hand now. What would they do? What would you do? Well, look what the Pharisees do. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What is wrong with these guys? Instead of bowing in worship and saying, oh, my gosh, you just healed this guy in a, in a curable way, and you delivered him from a, a debilitating disability, they're now filled with Fury! This word, in Greek this and Noyon—they're—they're they're mindless. They're out of their mind. It's like they just lost. Their, they cannot even handle it. And then Matthew, the, uh, a parallel gospel account, says that they started plotting his his to destroy him. Man, it, its the hypocrisy is crazy. You can you can't pluck grain. And you can't heal someone on the Sabbath, but you can apparently plot someone's murder. See, Pharisees are great at inconsistently highlighting the laws that fit them and totally just disregarding other ones like murder. See, the Pharisees are being exposed right now. Their whole power system and their whole paradigm is being dismantled before their eyes publicly. And so they are raging. You might be a Pharisee when you will do whatever you can to maintain your power and your beliefs. They don't want the Messiah. They want their power, and they want their way.
0: (laughs) And sometimes we think, hey, God, if you would just do
2: a miracle, I would believe. Is that really the case? Because throughout Scripture, and especially this case, you see miracles don't necessarily change hearts. The heart still wants its own autonomy, and
0: own lordship. You might be a Pharisee when you are filled with rage
2: when people expose your hypocrisy. Now, let's bring this home. How should we now live in light of this? Obviously, the question is, should Christians, new covenant Christians, with this new paradigm, keep the Sabbath? I did preach a sermon about a month, uh, a year ago, exactly, on the Sabbath. You can find it on our website. It's called um, 24-6, A Way to a Vibrant Life. I'm not going to give you my solutions or my teaching right now on that because there's just too, too little time to properly unpack the Christian's relationship with the Old Covenant law. But if you need a refresher or you want to go to it for the first time, I recommend it because it is a key to understanding how to flourish in Christ. Now, let me just address those who are weary. Because the actual practice of the Sabbath was not the main battle. Remember, the great war is against legalism. And so Sabbath is just the battle today. It's he's against, Jesus is against perverting God's good and holy law and making God's way a burden rather than a blessing, a way to earn rather than a way to live and thrive. Let's go back to the heart of what he's trying to accomplish. So like I said in the beginning, are you tired of not reading enough? Missing devotions, not giving enough? evangelizing enough, praying enough, killing sin enough, not loving enough, or perhaps in a more general sense, you're not growing enough. You're not working enough, earning enough, accomplishing enough, advancing enough, traveling enough, experiencing enough. And even if you can do enough, there's always tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And there's never enough. If you've lived your life for any number of years, you know that it's never enough.
0: Cue song from the greatest showman.
2: Jesus has good news for you and good news for me. Jesus wants to set us free from the bondage of sin and also free from the bondage of never being enough, never doing enough, not completely fulfilling the law perfectly. And the reality is all of us have failed to keep the law. Ultimately, the heart of the law is loving God with all our heart, mindful, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And nobody, nobody has ever kept that perfectly except
0: jesus but jesus in his kindness and mercy
2: instead of us dying for this punishment of fulfilling failing to fulfill that most essential law jesus died and when he died on the cross
0: he yelled out it is finished he did the work
2: so you didn't have to so that you get to not you don't have to see the law says do but christ says done It's done, and you can now actually rest. And by the power of the spirit, you can actually do good work, good, life-giving, productive, God-honoring work. That is not a way to merit God's favor, but because you're already favored, you can do it out of an overflow of joy. Jesus' finished work on the cross gives you the ability to rest. It's kind of like this. Imagine you blow it really bad at work, like so bad you're pretty sure you're going to get fired. And then you go to work on Monday, and you arrive, and your boss says, she tells you, hey, actually, someone else came and worked a whole (laughs) week's worth of work for you, and actually does it way better than you. And he wants you to have the paycheck and the bonus that comes with it. You got the week off. Imagine. Except in our case, it's spiritual, and it's forever. Jesus perfectly lives it out, and we get the credit as if we lived the way he did instead of live the way we live. And if you get this, Christian or unbeliever, if you grasp this, you can truly rest. And you don't have to be good enough. So for unbelievers here, skeptics, I'm so grateful you're here. What a strange thing for you to tune in to this. That takes boldness and curiosity. And I believe God is already drawing you, the fact that you're here. Maybe you say to yourself, you know what? I've done too much wrong. I will clean myself up, and when I get my things together, my addiction's broken and so forth, it's coming, I'm working hard, then I'll come to Jesus. No. That's not how Jesus works. You come right now in your filth. You come right now in your brokenness and in your incompleteness. That's the only state Jesus will take you, in a state where your hands are empty so He can fill them. Not, "Hey, this is what I've done so far to you. Can I earn it? Can I earn your love? Can I earn your acceptance? Am I good enough yet? No. If you come to him like that, you make Jesus' death on the cross worthless. His life and his death and his resurrection for you makes it possible so you can come empty-handed like I did, like everyone in this room did. And Jesus fills us. And Jesus satisfies us. And Jesus saves us from the punishment we deserve. And when we put our trust in him, he gives us his spirit, gives us a new heart, a new status. We become children of God. And he gives us the power to live a righteous life that we can never live apart from him. So if that's you, I I invite you to put your trust in Jesus, maybe for the first time, and lay down your control, lay down all your good deeds. It will never be good enough, I promise you. Even if you're better than the person around you, your standard is not your neighbor, but Jesus himself and God's holy law of loving him with all of yourself. And so lay down. Would you reach out to us? We'd love to talk to you what looks like to follow Jesus. and We'll figure out a way to baptize you during this crazy pandemic. Now, let me wrap it up. For the Christians, you may need to repent for pushing your man-made traditions on other people. This is something I've done many times, and I'm still learning on what are traditions and what are actually God's heart. And maybe you need to repent to somebody today that you've pushed your man-made traditions on them as if it was God's law. Secondly, Maybe you've subtly taken back up the yoke of slavery, the yoke of legalism, trying to earn yourself approval and favor and love from God. And you just need to give that to him again. And tell, tell a neighbor, tell a friend, tell your spouse that you've been falling back and let them pray with you and receive the gospel afresh that it's already been finished and you can receive his love and you can truly rest. You can truly enjoy Sabbath that you could enjoy him and God's ways and his word as a blessing and not a burden, because Jesus already did it, so there's nothing to pay anymore. And so if you feel this persistent anxiety that God is not pleased with you, confess that to him. He knows you feel that, and let him replace that with his favor and love that has only been bought by the blood of his son and the life of his son,
0: and receive his love afresh. Amen.